The Leadership Riptide by Tracy Swanepoel. More than 10,000 new business books are published annually. Most are like movie reruns, shameless regurgitations of old ideas. But hidden among them are a handful with exciting new insights. Sadly, these originals are often lost in the library of mediocrity. But every now and then, one breaks through the clutter. You have one of those in your hands. Tracy Swanepoel's contribution is a business book actually worth reading, partly because it adopts a fresh line of inquiry into one of the corporate sector's most pressing problems, but mostly because she touches us by sharing of herself while leveraging experiences and an ever-fertile mind through a talent for storytelling. The result is a page-turner, which kept me riveted through to the very last page. Another rarity in a world where 80% of readers don't get past the first 20% of any book. From a personal perspective, I'm delighted Tracy accepted the challenge of writing down her thoughts on overcoming the widespread cancer of disengaged employees. She's had plenty of practice, unable to restrain herself with her inner circle. Friends who, quite rationally, encouraged her to share them with the widest possible audience. I was first introduced to the concept of staff engagement two decades back by former colleague Jerry Skatemer, a broadcaster who sermonized about changing the corporate mindset about deployable bags of kilojoules. That sparked an interest which has grown over the years. Tracy breaks new ground in this critical area, sharing practical examples of how supposedly unteachable people have absorbed seemingly complex concepts, reinforcing my long-held belief that one should never underestimate the intelligence of the common man, but also don't overestimate their knowledge. Her efforts will assist in narrowing the chasm between managers and those they lead, between the formerly educated and those still learning. As an editor, Tracy's contributions to biznews.com have always been warmly received. Word-perfect, error-free, yet highly readable, they reflect a consummate perfectionist. She has weaved those skills into this wonderful contribution in what is an overcrowded field. It deserves to be read by everyone entrusted with any responsibility for serving their fellows. Alec Hogg, 3rd of May, 2016 Introduction. Putting the human into resources. I'm an 80s child. For some, that might conjure up images of Thatcher, Reagan, the Falklands War, even Prince Charles and Lady Di. For me, the 80s was about Chris Everett, Jimmy Connors, Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe, Martina Navratilova. I was tennis mad, and from the age of 10, I dreamt about someday winning Wimbledon. Somewhere along the line, I must have picked up on Gary Player's famous quote, the more I practice, the luckier I get, because I wholeheartedly believed that with enough hard work and dedication, I could make my dream come true. When, at 18, I was awarded a tennis scholarship to a U.S. university to compete in their top-ranked amateur league, the NCAAs, I was delighted. Things were falling into place. And things did fall, 
but not quite into the places that I had in mind. My first semester started with a bang. I earned my spot as team number one, and for the first time ever, we had a shot at winning our conference league. All was on track, apart from a small niggling pain down my left leg, diagnosed as sciatica, a fairly common tennis injury. I tried to ignore it away, but instead it got worse. Then the sports medics got involved, and before I knew it, Voltaren shots into my lower back became part of my pre-match ritual. And they did get me through matches, until they didn't. Conference final day dawned, and I had my usual shot. The pain receded, as it always did during the warm-up. But then, not only was I feeling no pain, but I was also feeling no leg. Later, I discovered this was due to severe nerve damage. Walking under these circumstances is challenging. Playing tennis? Impossible. I called for a timeout and confided to my coach, who to my dismay, instead of sympathizing, yelled at me to pull myself together if I wanted to keep my scholarship. My most painful realization in that moment was not that I'd potentially damaged my back beyond repair, or that my tennis career may be over, or that defaulting that very important match was inevitable. No, it was understanding that to my coach, I was just a resource, and no longer a particularly useful one at that. I returned to South Africa, had a spinal fusion, attended university, and discovered how to dream new dreams. But that just-a-resource feeling of disappointment stayed with me. Many years later, I was working in advertising for a client in the life insurance industry. This client's promise, which we were tasked to demonstrate in a 30-second TV spot, was, Our people make the difference. Curious, I asked if I could chat to these amazing people. And in an airless, dingy little room, I listened to the people, who said things like, I just work here. I check in my brain when I clock in. I can't wait to make enough money to get out of here. They don't care about us. We are just resources to them. And that's when I realized this is a problem that I want to have a go at fixing. Sometimes when people ask me, I say I'm passionate about inspiring leaders to create workplaces where humanity flourishes where people have the opportunity to live out their best selves, where potential is unleashed, and of course, where productivity, performance, and results follow. Oliver Wendell Holmes says, Most of us go to our graves with our music still inside us. That thought breaks my heart, and sadly, that's what I see in many organizations I come across. Right now, globally, Work is anything but a happy place for most employees. Engagement levels are hitting rock bottom and stress levels, propelled by anxiety and fear, are at all-time highs. Sadly, rather than providing an outlet for us to live out our passions, unleash our potential and make our dent in the universe, as Steve Jobs put it, work has for many become a life sentence, a necessary evil to be endured. So not only has engagement as measured by Gallup failed to improve, it's actually getting worse. This means that on any given day worldwide, in spite of a 300 
billion dollar industry which has sprung up specifically to address this problem. 75% of employees are disengaged, actively hate their jobs, are space occupiers, oxygen thieves, and dead weights. Forget passionate, purposeful world changes. Even bored baby boomers would be an improvement. Ironically, the more money we throw at this problem, the worse it seems to get. And then there are the quick fixes, the restructuring, the bonuses, the incentives, to name a few, which make bottom line and productivity numbers look good, but only for a while. Like being caught in a riptide, the more frantically we thrash about, the further away from the shoreline we seem to end up. When it comes to engagement, leadership is key. And the outputs of effective leadership should be employees who are engaged, connected, intrinsically motivated, inspired, realizing their full potential and going the extra mile, all of which should result in above average performance, sustainably. To escape a riptide, you have to change the way you swim. So if we want better engagement, we have to have better leadership different leadership. It's time to acknowledge that the thinking about leading people that got us here is not the thinking about leading people that will get us there. We need to rethink leadership. I'm not talking about tinkering with a bit of empowerment here or adding a little accountability there. It's time to stop putting lipstick on this leadership pig think hard about the environment that we want to create through our leadership, and then start doing the things that will make it a reality. The Road to Hell History fascinates me. Not in a names and dates kind of way, but more in a what made them do what they did kind of way. To sensibly define a new leadership paradigm, it's essential to understand the what got us here. We can probably trace much of the leadership stuff we practice today back to the Industrial Revolution, a time where man worked for machine, a triumph of commoditized manual labor where many hands made light work. Thinking and feeling? From production units? Surely, if these activities could have been officially banned, they would have been. In South Africa, where resource-intensive industries like mining and construction formed the bedrock of our economy, there's no denying that cheap manual labor got us where we are today. Factor in the political apartheid context, the complexity of language and cultural barriers, and the leadership model that emerged is not surprising. A language of instruction, fanagalo in the mining industry, a semi-military model of control, which required hard technical skills like mining, engineering, and accounting. More than a hundred years later, very little has changed. Leading people remains the necessary evil part of the promotion title status package. Were it the freebie in the package deal, it would almost certainly be immediately discarded. Whenever I ask supervisors, managers, even executives what their biggest challenge is, the answer is nearly always people, accompanied by the inevitable eye roll, 
Thank goodness for HR. They look after all the people stuff. Yes, the road to hell is indeed paved with good intentions. The backstory, of course, is that a guy studying mechanical engineering never dreams that one day, because he is a brilliant mechanical engineer, he will ascend the corporate ladder and no longer be required to be a mechanical engineer, but somehow magically have developed the skills and abilities to lead other mechanical engineers. So he does what has been done to him, what he has observed his superiors or leaders do, and what the system expects. A coal miner and I were recently chatting during a listening session about his company's business. Me. So what keeps you awake at night? Miner. Well, it's really a problem getting my people, 15 to 20 men and women, to do what they need to do, to do their jobs properly. Me, how do you do that currently? Minor, shout, scream and swear. Sorry, but there's just no other way. Me, does that work? Minor, well, sometimes, not always. Me, where did you learn that? Minor, that's how my boss does it. Of course, higher up in the ranks, there's more polish, more civility, more veneer. But the one boss, many workers, one brain, many hands, us, them, sentiment remains. It is entrenched in hierarchies, systems, information control, incentive schemes, and even meeting structures and design. Many times, Thinkspiration our business, which helps companies distill their strategy into a compelling story that all employees know, understand and want to deliver, has been called in to assist with communication problems, strategic alignment and engagement issues. Of course, there's lots of state-of-the-art stuff one can do. We've learned the hard way that words can take you so far, pictures a lot further but even those are only part of the solution. The real issue is that it is the way leaders lead on a daily basis, the environment they create, the leadership system, for lack of a better phrase, which speaks so loudly that nothing else can be heard. I've come to the conclusion that we as leaders need to literally be different, to be leave differently and to behave differently. Not one or the other, both. Leaders need to believe that we are leading human beings, not production units, that we don't own our people and that they can't be forced into vision, values, culture, direction and activities like sausage into a casing. That employees have a choice to listen to understand and to act, and that they are exercising this choice daily. The result is massive disengagement. That employees are trustworthy if we as leaders are prepared to trust them. That our job as leaders is to connect with and engage our employees and create a motivating environment that inspires them to perform at their best. Leaders need to behave like the role models that we are viewed as. Probably 
the only positive aspect of a hierarchy is that it gives leadership the leverage to change things just by doing things differently. Often as leaders, we fall into the trap of spending much more time talking about change than actually doing change. And people notice and imitate not what their role models say, but rather what they do. What leaders do is amplified through the organization. That sets the culture, the tone, the way we do things around here. Many years ago, as a junior strategic planner in a big advertising agency, I was tasked to put together a strategy for one of the agency's biggest clients. My immediate boss suggested I set up time for a background chat with the CEO of the agency, as he had worked on the client's business since inception. Imagine my horror when after a brief introduction, the CEO literally threw the book at me. This being a cute, friendly little booklet called What We Do and How We Do It, exhorting teamwork, consultation and listening, and chased me out of his office ostensibly for wasting his time. And oh yes, he didn't think that degreed people belonged in advertising. When my colleagues heard about this incident, it was blown off as a rite of passage. It happens to everyone. That's how we really do things around here. I've still got the cute little book. It's full of great sentiments and witty words, none of which ever, for me, managed to eclipse that five-minute little incident in the CEO's office. What lies ahead? I'm a begin-with-the-end-in-mind type of person. I've seen the value of painting the future in such vivid detail that you cannot only imagine it, but feel it, stand in it, and live in it. In that spirit, part one of this book is all about identifying six key characteristics of FutureCo. In other words, the kind of company that we as leaders should be striving to create. These six characteristics are underpinned by the latest thinking and research drawn from a myriad of disciplines that indicate what is required, supported by hard numbers, to make workplaces engaging, inspiring, motivating and productive. I found it useful to contrast, in terms of each characteristic, the reality we currently face and the ideal future we should shoot for. This from two is a less more continuum that is intended to provoke all of us as leaders to confront what we believe and track our progress accordingly. We need more focus on play and less focus on work, more focus on trust less focus on compliance, more focus on love, less focus on money, more focus on strengths, less focus on weaknesses, more focus on progress, less focus on numbers, and more focus on practice, less focus on theory. Part two deals with the practices of leadership. I love what Tim Brown, CEO of IDEO, says about leadership mainly because I've seen it happen. Leadership isn't some burden or right. It's a craft. If you practice it enough, you can master it. The question is what should you as a leader do or practice to create your version of future co? This is the behave bit. The first practice is obvious. 
to know ourselves? How can we lead others if we can't lead ourselves? Secondly, as leaders, in order to connect, engage with and influence, we have to know our audiences. This requires turning the classic leaders speak, followers listen paradigm on its head. Our greatest tools of influence are our ears rather than our mouths. Finally, using the age-old power of stories and storytelling in our messages is something we have to practice if we want to make them memorable, entertaining, and ultimately get them to stick. As part of each practice, I have included specific tools that I've tried and tested over many years and found to work really well. Finally, facts, arguments, numbers, and statistics don't hold a candle to the persuasive power of stories. The anecdotes based on my seven years at Harmony Gold Mining Company, the fifth largest gold mining company globally, are intended to illustrate some of the ideals and practices of FutureCo discussed in part one and part two and demonstrate how we attempted to escape the leadership riptide. At the very least, these will give you a sense of what life was like in a non-corporate corporate that dreamed way above its fighting weight. Enjoy.